Sunny Robinsdale, Venezuela. Are you guys ready to start now? Yes. Okay, are separation and sanctification. I'd like you to say with me this morning what those three words are again. Salvation, separation, and sanctification. And I, as I proceed, I will see that these words cover the, the period and the circumstances from the time that you and I, yes, you and I, met Jesus as our Lord and Savior and until the time we are made perfect and we're taken home to glory. I hope that you can identify these terms with your life as the world is going through turbulent times, turbulent times that we have not witnessed, I believe, since the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Now, the first great word is salvation. Salvation. Now, if this were to be my last Sunday in the pulpit, I'd want to emphasize this word, salvation. If I'm granted more time in this pulpit, I will move on to separation and sanctification, but I want to emphasize this word, salvation. The first great word is salvation. They're all S words, folks. 
We find in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, that neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none unnamed. There's none other name under heaven given among humanity whereby we must be saved. No other name. You will either bow to Jesus Christ here in life or at the judgment seat of Christ, you will bow. So much better for you and I to bow and accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior in the here and now rather than bow in the hereafter, being judged. Now, salvation is that process where God looks at you and I as a lost individual. God forgives us. God adopts us into that heavenly family. God changes our very nature. God walks with us down that pathway of life, and God takes us home to heaven at the end of the way. We have come to a day when people look upon God as almost a grandfather of weakling. Our society today is looking upon God as almost a grandfather weakling, swayed by the opinions of people. People have somewhat concocted this false doctrine which says God is some kind of a glorified scout here upon earth and all are his children, that he won't allow any of us, any, to perish. And thus we cast aside this Bible doctrine and it's cast aside truly by many denominations and many faith groups even today. They've cast aside the word judgment and hell and atonement and accountability to God. But the Bible clearly teaches that we are, are not the children of God. There's an assumption going on in many liberal churches and among many liberal Christians that we're the children of God. No, we're not. We only come to become children of God when we come into his family by the new birth. And this new birth is yours and mine the minute we repent of our sins and we trust Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I'd like to take you back to a certain day when Jesus was talking to a certain group of religious, religiously lost people. They were very careful to keep all the laws of God and they were very careful to observe all the religious feasts and ceremonies and disciplines. But Jesus said to them, you are not the children of God. Jesus said this, you are not the children of God. You are the children of your father, the devil, and his works you do. John chapter 1, 12 tells us that as many as received Jesus, to them he gave power to become the children of God. Note that word, become. Say it with me. Become. It tells us that in our natural state, we are not the children of God. We must, what? Become his children. The Bible plainly teaches us that we, you and I, without Christ, are lost. L-O-S-T. I've been going through some real turbulent times this past week, from last Sunday to this Sunday. They've been trying to diagnose me with bladder cancer and prostate cancer, and I've had things stuck up just about every area of my body. I've been in pain, but nothing like the pain 
that you and I would go through if we were lost, that one day away from Christ and away, away from the community of Christ, after that judgment seat, can you imagine the pain and the sorrow that we'd go through? The Bible clearly and plainly teaches us that we, without Christ, are lost. We are separated from God. We have no claim on Jesus. We have no hope for the, this life and, or in the life to come. There is no difference, says the Bible, for all have sinned, all have sinned, and come short of the glory of God. All are lost, all need salvation. That is true of the criminal. And I've, by the way, I've had some criminals call me. That's true of the criminal in, in the cell. It's equally true of the good moral person in their homes, in their apartments, listening by radio or television today. It's true of the fallen man and the fallen woman. It, it's true also of the purest of man and purest of woman in town. It's true of the person who is down and out. It's also true of the person who is up and out. The very thought of salvation suggests a sense of peril and danger. The Lord's been really speaking to me this past work week about the word drift, and I'm going to be talking about that more in weeks to come because I think there's a tragedy more so than 9-11 in World War I or World War II or even what we're experiencing now, this unseen enemy, this world war. It's, it's called what I call drifting. I've seen so many people drifting, drifting in the wrong direction, drifting from salvation, drifting from the church, drifting from their spouses, drifting from their children and their parents, and drifting from the moral standards of the Ten Commandments, and drifting from Jesus Christ. And that, that drifting is, is, is unparalleled. And the very thought of salvation suggests peril and, and a sense of danger. We think of the fire person climbing the ladder to save someone from the danger of, of dying in flames. We think of the brave men and women in the lifeboat struggling to save someone from death in the stormy sea. We, we think of the doctor watching by a bedside fighting to save the life of someone near death. And I think of the many times I've sat by the bedsides of people when they've cried out and said, what do I do next? How am I sure of my salvation in the pathway to heaven? And, and to pray with that person, the ABCs, that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. They, B, we need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and then C, we need to confess Him as our Lord and Savior, and see the, the glorious change that occupies the countenance of that person as they breathe their last breath here upon life in earth. Soul, soul, soul salvation suggests that we are in danger of hell and the penalty of sin. We desperately need someone to save us, to save us. And everyone can have salvation. On Calvary's cross, Christ purchased salvation for you and I and all. And now Jesus cries out to all the world, come. Come unto me. Come and enter all I've done for you. Come and accept the salvation that I purchased for you. 
Jesus uses one big word, one big word to include, include everyone, and that word is whosoever. Say it with me. Whosoever. He teaches and he reaches out to the highest and the lowest, and no one is left out when he says whosoever. For God so loved the world that he gave of his only begotten Son that the whosoevers would not perish but have everlasting life. And how do we get this salvation? The Bible is plain on this subject that if you want to be saved, you must genuinely repent of your sin and you must sincerely trust Jesus Christ as your, your personal Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then Jesus, and it's Jesus alone that he'll do the saving. Jesus will take you into God's family. Jesus will, will write you on the land's book of, of life. Baptism doesn't make you a child of God. Church membership doesn't make you a child of God. Giving all of your money, and we appreciate those who have sent their offerings in by way of mail or other means. The church is going on even though we're not congregating on as a body on on. Sunday mornings, that body is still out and it's still generating enthusiasm for Christ and it's still the salt and the life. Living a good life and doing good works doesn't do it. These things come later and they, they ought to come. But the Bible teaches us that when we come to Jesus, all, all of us are bought with his blood and we become Jesus's and we're inherited, we're grafted in. Some time ago, I talked to a man who had been written up in the Honolulu paper as one of the leading members of a particular church. As we talked of salvation, I asked, I asked him if he was fully trusting Jesus Christ for his salvation, and he said, yes. Yes, I am, he said. And then he went on to say, but that's not enough. And I thought, that's not enough? There, he said, there, there are certain rules and regulations you must keep and certain things you must do. But I maintain to you and I, it was by way of television and by way of radio, that Christ is able to save any, any of us without any additional help on our part. Jesus paid the price for us. When we become willing to turn from our sins and when we become willing to trust Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior, Jesus frees us from this debt of sin. In the olden days, as I traveled and I was deployed in the military, there were certain benefits that I experienced and occasional days off when you travel. We were in a certain city and I was listening to the tour guide and he was talking about that in the olden days there's this certain type of torture, a certain type of torture, and it prevailed, it originated in Europe, and the victim would be placed in a room of exquisite beauty. The floors and the walls were highly polished, the room had no roof so that the individual could look up and see the beautiful sky. And the, the victim, the victim would um, congratulate himself or herself, but soon they would notice that the walls, the walls were slowly closing in. And 
each the, each day the, the the room would become smaller and smaller and, and they knew that soon they would be crushed to death and inevitably they would be. But there was only one way of escape and it was if a friendly hand might reach down and rescue them, but there was no such hand and they would die this terrible death. Now we see here a picture of every sinner, a sinner such as you and I. Death and judgment are are slowly but slowly closing in us. Doesn't it seem like yesterday, maybe we were a teenager or we were young adults? And as time goes by, it just accelerates. And in the course of time, Time, T-I-M-E, we always think we have more than there really is. But in this case, there is hope for you and I in Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ reaches his hand down, down to the sinners such as you and I. And all we need to do is to grasp that hand by faith and we'll be lifted up and we'll be saved. Now, how long does salvation last? How long does salvation last? It lasts forever and, and forever. Some people teach that one can be saved today and lost tomorrow. They are therefore basing their salvation on works, not on Christ's work. If one is saved and we are going on to lose that salvation, the power of Jesus is almost diminished. His power, Jesus' power, is greater than that of Satan. And if you say that Christ can save you and that Christ and that Satan can then take you away from Christ, you're saying that Satan is more powerful than Christ, and that's certainly not true. A young man came to me and said, I've been having an argument, an argument with my, with another man, and he says that, he says that you can be saved and that you can be lost tomorrow. What scripture can I use to convince him that he's wrong? And I replied, that's easy, that's easy. Just, just quote John 3.16 to him and ask him how long everlasting is. How long is everlasting? And he told me that I did that and the man got the point that if God gives you everlasting life and if everlasting life means forever, then you can never lose the salvation that God gives you. Now, some people do not believe that Christ can save a person and take them straight to heaven at the end of the way, so they've invented a certain word called purgatory. Purgatory. I asked one of them one day what such a place, why such a place was necessary, and the answer was was that, that when a person dies, they feel that they might not be possibly good enough to go to heaven. So they've devised a place where they can go and have their sins burnt away for a certain period of time, they're purged in purgatory. Then they can enter into heaven at some indiscriminate date later. Now the real Christian has no fear of death. 
They welcome death as a time to go out to be with Jesus where there's no more sin, no more sickness, no more sorrow, no more death, where none of these things can ever touch them again. But certainly no one would welcome death if they knew that as soon as they died, it would be, they'd be cast into a sense of fireiness of, of a certain state of purgatory or limbo. No, my friends in Christ, there's enough for you and I to believe that's in the Bible. We need to be believe that first, not the rules and the regulations of man that tries to come along and try to help God out and cause confusion. No, my friends, the Christ who made heaven and earth is all-powerful. He died on the cross to save, save all who come to him by faith. And when that when on that cross he said it is finished, he meant that the work of salvation was completed. Bought heaven and eternal life for you and I. I'm not finished, folks. I just have to quit. You're going to have to listen to part two a little later. But with every head bowed and every eye closed, let us close in a word of prayer. He tells us that if we come to Jesus, we shall never perish. You are as safe in heaven the minute after you're saved as if you'd been there 10,000 years. But there's this old argument that says that if one is saved forever when he trusts Christ, then he doesn't matter how, however, how he lives. He could go out and kill a person and still go to heaven. But the one who makes this argument forgets that when a person is saved, they receive a new nature. They want to go out and, and they want to do good things, not bad things. Now, no one is perfect even after they have been saved, and God will punish one for one's sin. And that punishment, that, that chastisement will come in this life, but they will still be a child of God and will someday find a home in heaven. So the first great word is salvation. With every head bowed and every eye closed, would you say this prayer with me today? Dear Jesus, I acknowledge that you love me but I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. Forgive my sins, O Lord. Come into my heart and life. Be my Lord and Savior. And empower me, O Lord, by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. And at this time, I'd like to call on Mike. And Mike, if you'd come and share, and I think we might be going by way of um, we continue to go by way of television this morning and we're going to be doing a little patching and, and including certain things in our thoughts and our prayers today. Um, Mike doesn't know it. Mike doesn't realize it, but, but many people are tuning in. Even by way of radio, they can see you. They can see you by way of television. So we wave at you. Bless you, Mike. I'm famous. <laughs> Our third sermon here is on Matthew 27, verses 49 through uh, 36.
plating a crown of thorns they put on his head and put a reed in his right hand and kneeling before him they mocked saying hail king of Jews this was a complete opposite of how Jesus was actually royalty and of course this is from the devil sort of stuff it's counterfeit it's not real. They put a crown of thorns on his head just to mock him. But the truth is, he is a king. He not only created the earth and the universe, but he's the king of it. In verse 30, and they, and they spat on him, and they took the reed and they struck him on the head. This was particularly cruel. Spitting on that's all cars unsanitary and gross. But to beat his head while he had the crown of thorns on, on it, that dug the thorns on the branch deep into his skull, in his bone. That was just a, if there's anything that Romans are good at, it certainly was torture. The soldiers knew what they were doing, and they wanted Jesus to feel exactly how they felt about him. So in verse 31, you see, they kept him to mock him. And they led him to crucifixion. This was the devil thinking he was going to win. He's going to kill the like, Son of God. He's going to get their back. Of course, it's not right. He did just the option. He signed his own warrant when he crucified Jesus. In 33, they put the creator and king of life on the cross on a place called Bogotha. That is the place of the skull. Here again, it's opposites. The king of life is to die on the cross in Bogotha, a place of death. Verse 30 says, and they spat on him, took the reed, and they struck him on the head. Like I said, that just caused him more pain and discomfort because it dug the thorns in the ground down. And 34, verse 34. He wouldn't drink the wine. Do you know why he wouldn't drink the wine? Because at the Last Supper, he took it with his disciples, and he said, I will not taste the fruit of the vine until I am in my kingdom. He didn't drink the wine because he said he wouldn't drink the wine. Until he was with his Father, God, he was not to have anything had to do with dulling the pain. That's what that was for, the dull the pain of crucifixion. He felt it. He felt every thorn, every whip, every nail, every pound of the nail. He felt everything. He did that for you, for me. He did that for all of us. It's just incredible to think that he wouldn't even take painkiller, despite what he's going through, because he said he would. Verse thirty-five. And when they had crucified him, 
they divided his garments among them by casting lots. I've heard gambling to sin. This has got to be the ultimate extreme. They gambled, they cast lots for his clothes. For his men, they humiliated and spit upon and beat and nailed to a cross. I think that's the ultimate example of gambling being sinful. In 36, they sat down and kept watching him over there. You know what? They sat down and watched him die. We're supposed to go down in front of Jesus. This is another cheap counterfeit copy that Satan had devised. When we get down before Jesus, we're on our knees, worshiping and praying to him in the kingdom. And until we get to the kingdom, here on earth, it's real. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for inspiring me to give this message. And I just want to pray for everybody in the audience listening to my voice, and even those who are not, that coronavirus, it's not good. Of course, it killed people, particularly vulnerable. I'm going to pray now against that, Lord, that you save us from it. It's not going to be the pandemic and the, the math that that's the destruction that, that Satan wants it to be. Lord, keep us safe and healthy during this faith-challenging time. The challenge is to keep our faith during the coronavirus. But remember, it's not the Lord testing us. It's not the Lord testing us, Lord. You don't do that. We don't have to look down in sickness and embarrassment for what's going on in the world. We must pray and look up to the Father God and His Son Jesus, who eventually saved it from us all. For us all. Thank you, Lord. In your holy precious name, I pray to Jesus Christ. Amen. Take those two minutes now.